Good evening, everyone. Thank you very much for coming out tonight. Thank you, virtual audience, for joining us. I, too, was tempted to stay home and do this in my jammies, but it <laughs> <laughs> didn't, didn't actually work. So I'm very pleased that Kate Alice Marshall has come back. She lives in Seattle, so this is okay for her, too. Um, I feel very at home. You do. <laughs> right. Plus, she learned an important lesson about shoes on her last visit, which is do not wear your fancy high-heeled boots to go on book tour. <laughs> Those are very nice. Yeah. I, I bought these because they kind of match the cover. <laughs> oh, so they do. Oh, maybe we should have put the book down on your feet and you could have kind of kicked it around. Right. Anyway, um, where was I? Oh, so Kate was here last year and we had a wonderful time. So I'm extremely pleased that she's back here. And her last year's book is now out in paperback just now. And if you missed it up in front. So maybe, Kate, since maybe they weren't here last year, you might want to talk about last year's book for a moment to sort of warm us up. Oh, sure. So uh, last year I released What Lies in the Woods, which is the story of uh, three young girls who uh, have a uh, summer of imagination and playing this mystical game in the woods uh, and their summer ends uh, when one of them is viciously attacked and the three of them end up testifying and putting away a serial killer and are hailed as heroes uh, but 22 years later that man has died in prison and one of them has decided that it's time to finally tell the truth of what they were actually doing out in those woods. Uh, because they had made a rather grim discovery and decided to keep it to themselves. And then after everything happened, realized that there was no way to come clean about it uh, and keep their, um, uh, their credibility at the trial. So they don't all agree about whether that secret should come to light and things sort of uh, tumble along from there story a sort of story idea that comes across again in in this book you know in the woods is i mean there have been a lot of books harlan colbin has written a book in the woods tana french if you remember her first book it all sort of reminds me of you know grim fairy tales the, the brothers grim because you know they were collecting tales from germany where there was a lot of woods <laughs> dark forests where where bad things happen when i was a child i loved fairy tales and i read like the blue book and the yellow book Did any of you re remember those the red book yeah, and the orange yeah. book and all they were great um and they were really designed to scare you bad yeah. things happened to people I, I who went into the woods out of the library one by mm -hmm. one and just cycle through them uh i love writing stories set in the forest and especially when i can uh, send kids into the woods. I spent a lot of my childhood uh, venturing into not very deep at all woods and pretending that they were a great deal more mysterious than they actually were uh, and uh, imagining that I, you know, found the door to Narnia or spotted a unicorn uh, or learned the secrets of magic. And so the forest to me from the beginning has always been the place where uh, anything can happen and imagination resides. But your, your experiences are more positive than, let's say, the troll under the bridge. Yeah, for the most part, <laughs> things right. were uh, pr pretty good. <laughs> You know, we had, when I was a kid in Winnetka, Illinois, we had, um, before everything got so overdeveloped, we had a stretch behind our grammar school, 
and there was a woods, and you had to cross this meadow to get there with a little creek through it, and there were garter snakes living in the meadow, so that was the scariest part was to walk through the snakes. But when we got into the woods, which were probably about the size of this bookstore, but looked enormous to us when we were little kids, we had all these imaginary, you know, things happen. And I remember that, how much fun that was. I wonder how many people get to do that anymore. I think it probably depends a lot on uh, where, you are. where you live. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and <laughs> well, we didn't have those. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, that's a really interesting question. Right. Do you know there's a there's a contest on? I just saw it, some some huge reward if you can go without your phone for a month. I wonder if anybody will enter it. I mean, it's a big payoff, but it's not clear to me that anybody is actually going to be able to do that, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, part of me uh, wants to. <laughs> I definitely am too attached to my phone and trying to be less so. But from a practical standpoint, uh, you know, I, it would probably make it harder to keep track of uh, who's picking the kids up and all of that, so I probably shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So here we are talking about No One Can Know with matching shoes, which I love. Um, and again, the truth is kind of a slippery thing in this story, and the truth is was told in, in the, you know, backstory is not necessarily the truth that everybody has to come to grips with in the front story. What does that? What? Why does that story structure appeal to you so much? Uh, I don't know the deep psychological root of it. I just know that uh, the buried secrets coming to light again is one of my favorite uh, conceits, and I love to play with the way that the characters have changed between those two time periods and uh, unexpected contrasts and transformations and looking at the, the people they were when they made certain decisions and mistakes and the people they became that now have to live with them and just uh, delve into what our mistakes and our histories and our scars mean in our adult lives and how to navigate around them and whether you can really escape them. So what does the role of protecting another person or persons play in your stories? Because it seems to me that that's been true in both books. Yeah, um, I, I think that it is one of the elements that makes me want to spend an entire book with a main character is that they care about another person deeply, especially if they are otherwise a very flawed and difficult person or have uh, major weaknesses. If they are willing to be strong or uh, make their bad decisions on behalf of someone else, that's really interesting to me, and uh, I, I love to chase that conflict. So when you, when you first published, you were writing middle grade fiction, I My think. My first was young adult. Young adult, okay. Well, younger readers, let yes. me put it that way. <laughs> okay, um, and if I remember right, last year's book, was that your first adult thriller, so to speak? Yes. Right, so when you were writing for a younger audience, um, did you... I mean, I'm wondering if, you know, relating to kids when you're writing the earlier books is one reason why these two adult books have featured kids. Yeah, I think that uh, it 
it comes back to the way that I've trained myself to think about kind of character and backstory. And I think there's an argument to be made that both of these books are sort of like, what if one of my young adult novels was the first act and right. then uh, we didn't resolve the problem? And uh, wouldn't that really mess someone up? <laughs> and wouldn't yeah. that be really interesting when they're in their 30s? Uh, and so I, I really do enjoy taking that uh, age range that I've written for and uh, written uh, for that category and stopped there and then thinking about, okay, but what about 20 years from now? What about 15 years from now? Because these things are going to keep being complicated and that trauma is not just going to go away. That's very well well put. Thank you. Because I, I, I had a sense that, you know, that your earlier books, in fact, factored into the story structure and the characters that you were writing about. For adults, what's the difference between writing for young adults and adults? This is a question I've never been entirely clear on. Um, I, I have a pretty set answer for this. Uh, my The biggest difference for me is between middle grade and the other two categories. Okay. Because with middle grade, you're talking about protagonists who are 10 to 13. And the voice in particular is very different and the types of lessons they're learning about the world and the types of character transformation are very different. They're about kind of finding your initial place in the world, deciding who you want to grow up to be, figuring out how to be an independent human being in any way when you are coming out of your initial childhood. Um, and for me, uh, those books are also an excuse to uh, be a little more lighthearted and have some fun and then also really dig deep and wear emotions on the sleeve. They have no cynicism to them. Uh, and for me, at least, young adult and adult are much closer together. And the difference comes down a little bit to the voice and then a lot to the uh, the scale of the problems in their lives. So if you're writing about a teenager and you want to write about a character who has loved and lost, that happened in the last two years max. So there's a, they have no less trauma, but it has a different age to it, and so it has a different impact on them as characters. And with my adult characters, it's a way to think more long-term and think about the way that things uh, mature or fester or change over the years. And so that is, is sort of the, the locus of the difference for me. So <clears throat> were any of you here when Stacey Willingham was here earlier in January? Okay, so do you remember we talked about um, young, you know, girls going off or boys, either one? going off to college and that this was the time in your life when you were maybe most prone to make really bad decisions. <laughs> um, I mean, hormones were at play. Um, you didn't have a lot of experience and you were no longer being protected by your parents or your family and so forth, which is how that whole book went into play. Um, is that, you know, do you agree with that? That, that young adults, you know, teenagers, especially rising, you know, seniors and going off to college can really make awful decisions yeah that is certainly true i'm 
uh, lucky that my decisions were bad and temporary. <laughs> I think that that's sort of what you cross your fingers for, is that whatever dumb mistake you make as a 19-year-old isn't going to be one that lasts past senior year of college, you know, and you can move and leave that behind you. Uh, but it is a great age for uh, having characters who are going to make heat-of-the-moment decisions and act on instinct or um, an incorrect impression of the way that people work uh, or just make a decision that they feel really passionately about that, like, from the outside, you can see that their entire being is feeling this intensely, but there's so much more to it. Uh, and so it's very easy to get teenage characters into trouble. It really is. I remember how hard it was. I went to college when I was only 17. And, you know, and I went 2,000 miles away from home all the way to Palo Alto. And I remember, I can't believe I actually survived. <laughs> you know, I mean, when I look back on it, you know, I, you know, whatever. So, I mean, sometimes I think it's just luck, you know, as much as anything that we navigate those times and, um, you know, are able to move past the mistakes that we made and carry on. Yeah, luck, and then uh, it really helps if you're like me and you're basically kind of a timid, boring person. <laughs> wow. It's like, I'm going to make some very mild mistakes now because I'm feeling rebellious. <laughs> okay. Mine were never mild, nor <laughs> nor have I ever been timid. <laughs> so my, my mistakes were potentially catastrophic, but, but I did survive them. Um, anyway, um, I love the fact that in this book, Kate apologizes to her parents <laughs> because this is a book in part about really bad parenting, really bad parenting. So, you know, I hope your parents yeah, took it in the spirit <laughs> that, you, that you wrote it. I managed to keep that dedication a secret until they actually bought their copy and they, they, it cracked them up, luckily. So they, they did take it in the intended spirit. My parents are very lovely and they raised us very well. Uh, so this is entirely based on secondhand knowledge, luckily. Of course, you're being a really superb parent yourself, right? Oh, of course. I'm the best. All right. So <laughs> why don't you give us your, you know, elevator pitch, so to speak, for the book? Yep. So as discussed, this has a lot of uh, similar elements to what lies in the woods with uh, a secret that's been kept for many years. It starts with a trio of sisters uh, who ha are in their house right after the murder of their parents. And the middle sister, Emma, has basically come across this scene, doesn't know what's going on, but one of her sisters has blood on her, one of them, her hair is wet, and her clothes are dry, their parents are dead, they all hate their parents, and she very quickly sizes up the situation and says, all right, here's what we're going to do, and cleans up the scene and calls the police and then never tells anyone what she saw that night, even when she becomes a suspect in the murders. And so her sisters essentially abandon her afterwards. She loses touch with them. She goes off. She gets married. Uh, and her um, terrible husband, uh, puts them in a very bad financial situation where the only option she has is to move back to that very same house which she still owns because she and her sisters would need to work together to sell it. And when she returns, um, 
old tensions come back and she decides that she would like to finally know what really happened that night. Why is it that a trio, I mean, because we now talked about three girls in the woods and now three gays, three girls at home in the murder scene. What appeals to you about a trio? Um, I like to blame my mother for this because she... I knew she was going to come into <laughs> it. It's a poor mom. <laughs> she is also a writer, and um, which was uh, why I wanted to be a writer from the time that I knew what it was. And every once in a while, she would give me some little piece of writing advice. Not very often because I think she didn't want to interfere or, you know be overbearing and make me not want to do it anymore but every little piece of advice she gave me I remember to this day and um, once she was talking about how when you are writing about a pair of characters you have one relationship to write about and she said as soon as you add a third character it becomes much more complex because mm -hmm. now you have three relationships to write about plus the relationship that all of them have together and so that creates a much more chaotic and dynamic system that's constantly shifting. Uh, and so that was sort of how I started to think about creating groups of characters. And it's the, my sort of uh, uh, natural unit to work in because I like to think about how each of those pairings uh, has its own character to it and how the loyalties might shift or how things might change if one of them pulls away and that sort of thing. And I really like the movement it creates and the potential for instability. Well, if you have three, that means that one's always aside or left out. If you were to write about four sisters, it would be a different structure, wouldn't it? Right, yeah. Because it's unlikely that three of them would gang up and one of them would be left out. But in a trio, it's always going to be that way. And I think that in a lot of uh, groups like that, it changes over time who is kind of the one That's right. more on the outside. Yeah, no, absolutely true. So um, there's some bad actors in this book that are men. Do you want yes. to talk about any of them? <laughs> it's not all guys. Come on. This is, not, this is not, you know, all bad men and all good women here, but still. Um, this one's more weighted than some. <laughs> so... Uh, Who are the men? Oh, there there are some really terrible guys. There we have Nathan, uh, the husband, who's mostly terrible by virtue of being incompetent and untrustworthy. Um, and I think that uh, he he's really important in the story to illustrate pretty quickly that Emma has very little self regard and has stayed with him because he stayed with her and no one else has, which uh, is not a very healthy basis for a marriage. Uh, so he is uh, not great, but not like truly evil. Uh, and then we have the um, police in the town who are convinced still that Emma was the one who murdered her family. Which and one is, sorry, which one is Emma in, in order Emma of age? Emma is the middle sibling. Okay. She's the one, <laughs> yes. What, what was As it a I heard there, of course. Of course, <laughs> yes. She's the one who uh, saw that her little sister had blood on her, her big sister had been somewhere she shouldn't have, and was like, well, 
neither one of you is going to be able to handle this, so I'm going to do it. Um, uh, yeah, and so the the police are a major antagonistic force uh, in terms of making sure that Emma knows that she's not welcome and uh, are a continuing pressure on her. You mean when Emma comes back home yes, in order to try to home. sell the house? Yeah, and they don't want her there, and she has a fear that her presence there is going to make them look at her again and try to uh, push this narrative that she's guilty again. So who's been living in the house over this intervening period between the murders and now? The house has been empty the whole time and taken care of by uh, a semi-friend who still lives in the town. So when they go to open up the house, it's very much uh, opening back up the, the mausoleum uh, and there's uh, graffiti on the walls and dust all over everything. And so they're sort of trying to uh, breathe some life back into this house that she's not sure she wants to be in at all. So in a way, it's kind of like a reunion. You know, the sisters have been split up. They're all different places. And they come back together in order to clean up the house and sell it because... They, which Emma, isn't it? Yes. Emma's married to Nathan, right? Emma is married to okay. Nathan. Okay, and, and she and they need the money. At the house. the The sisters do arrive, but uh, their their intentions don't have a lot to do with real estate because both of them are very nervous that uh, Emma is back at the house. They each have reasons for not wanting her to look too closely at the past. So it's not going to be a happy reunion <laughs> all the way around. Um, I think that justice in this book is a pretty slippery thing. And sometimes you have to do bad things in order to achieve whatever justice it is. We can't talk about it, unfortunately. But I did think, <laughs> I did think there were a couple of slippery moral slopes in this book. Yes, <laughs> for sure. And I think that uh, various characters... Uh, have different opinions on just how much justice exists at the end of the book uh, and uh, whether the right decisions were made. And um, I will withhold any opinion of my own and leave it up to the readers to see who they agree with. Well, some of the, some of the decisions led to irrevocable results. So, you know, you, you can't really second guess yourself if you can't change it. You know, that's the way it is. So, yeah, it's an interesting book to read. Um, you know, um, it's a slippery book in point of fact. Um, right. So are you continuing on this path? Are you planning on writing more adult thrillers? And are you still exploring these same issues? Or are you going to go in a different direction? Yeah, I actually just turned in my next adult thriller last night. Oh, uh, finally, you emailed to it from Houston, it right? Out of my hands. Yes, yeah. I emailed it from my hotel room um, after having like read over it several more times than I actually needed to to change the last comma. That's going to make it a perfect book. Um, and uh, that one is uh, it. It is in the same spirit, uh, but no no trio of girls this time. It is about a young woman who is going to spend two weeks with her uh, future in-laws after getting uh, having a whirlwind romance with a very wealthy young man. 
uh, and she's going to stay at their isolated uh, mountain retreat for a couple of weeks. And uh, then she discovers an abandoned cabin on the grounds and finds that there is a photo of her as a child in it. Wow. Ooh. <laughs> I was thinking it would be a gothic, but didn't any of you read the heiress, the Rachel um, Hawkins' new book? Well, it's a, it's a really terrific gothic. And, and a gothic requires a really great house and preferably isolated, preferably in some, you know, I mean, think about Rebecca. If you've never seen Rebecca, you should watch the movie, which is great, or even better, read the book. Um, so it sounds like you sort of set it up to be a gothic, but maybe it isn't. I think it doesn't have enough house to be a gothic because <laughs> they're yeah, all in scattered, the little, cabin. <laughs> scattered little cabins. <laughs> yeah. Well, all right. Um, I think I think it's great that you you know are can you, are you sliding back into doing young adult or middle grade at any point or are you now hooked on adult? <laughs> I do have another uh, young adult novel that's scheduled for uh, summer 2025 right now, uh, and that one is um, it's a I'm going back to a straight thriller as opposed to most of my YA has been supernatural. Uh, so that one's about a, <laughs> this is the book that came about after I said loudly on a public street to my husband, I just want to isolate a bunch of teens and start killing them off one by one. <laughs> so it's that book. <laughs> I hope there weren't any law enforcement people anywhere near you when you said that. She's a writer. <laughs> Fictional teens. Oh, it's a great premise. <laughs> It's, you know, it's a, a classic structure, and in this one, they are a group of teens who are supposed to be competing on a survival-themed reality show, uh, and they show up to uh, compete and discover that no one is there, and the show was canceled without telling them, um, which may be nefarious, and they end up trapped there with the only survival supplies being kind of gated behind playing the games that are set up uh, and then they start to uh, die and discover that possibly them being there isn't uh, truly an accident. So as you were <coughs> gently aging, do you find that it's harder to um, you know, stay relevant to, I'm asking this question because it came up today in a conversation I had with Janice Hallett, the British writer, and she told me, because she's now way past being a teenager, that one thing she does, because she lives in London, is she rides the bus all over the city, and part of it is so she can listen to kids and listen to them talk and try to figure out what their, you know, what their language is, what their interest is. Now, she doesn't use it a lot in her books, but she's a journalist, and so it's interesting to her. Um, so how do you stay kind of in touch with kids? Uh, well, until recently, my husband was a high school teacher, and so mm. I had a man on the inside. Uh, <laughs> but most of what that convinced me of was that any attempt to uh, accurately copy the vocabulary and the the true rhythm of language in teens' lives these days would instantly make me seem very cringe. Uh, in part because it was changing constantly. He'd come home and be like, oh, there's a new new slang term, and that one is now, it, I can't, you don't use it. They'll think that you are, you know, 
ancient and ready for the grave. Uh, so I try to um, pretend that uh, all teens will just speak in a consistent voice from year to year, and I, I don't try to pepper in too much slang because I feel like that's just going to instantly date it. Uh, so I just have to hope that the the themes and the relationships uh, and the language of it will carry us through each little present micro moment. Yeah, that's a really good point. Over the years, I have learned from crime writers that you have to avoid things like, for example, money, because money never stays the same. And if you don't want to date a book, you need to avoid it. It came up with a golf mystery, of all things, and it was the prize for winning the tournament. And it, uh, while it said there was a prize, it never actually said what it was. And I said to the author, you know, that was pretty slippery. Why'd you do that? And he said, because it'll age my book. Because, you know, five years from now, if I'd said they won 50,000 pounds or whatever, he's British, um, you know, it'll it'll be like the Dark Ages. And um, so, you know, there, there are certain things that will, in fact, date a book. And if you, you know, today, do you know, you all know about sensitivity readers and all this new stuff that's happening? Publishers are so concerned about offending anybody that they have put in sensitivity readers whose job is to read through, um, depending on what community or what message or whatever it is you have going on in the book, and determine, or if you're writing about a, a race or a culture or whatever that you aren't, um, then you have to have a sensitivity reader to see whether anything you do might be a false note. I'm I'm not defending it. I am in fact opposed to it violently. <laughs> well, but they they have you know put out new Agatha Christie's that have removed and they uh, George Ed Hare was a Regency right. They took out a section in one of her books because it reads anti-Semitic at the moment. I keep waiting for somebody to tackle Raymond Chandler and the Simple Art of Murder. At which point I'm just going to give up. Um, but you know I. It is. Um, I think you have to read books, you know, in the, you have to relate to the culture of, of the time they were written. And to take offense about, you know, somebody being true to where they were at the moment when they wrote it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I will say that as a writer who's working now, I have gotten a lot of benefit out of working with readers who, uh, I tend to prefer a term like, um, uh, a consultant and uh, expert on a particular area where uh, I really like to sit down with somebody when I'm early in the process if I am tackling a character whose experience is very outside of my own just to talk about this is what I'm thinking about with the character and uh, do you have any insight or am I making factual mistakes uh, because just like I would ask someone who knew about horses to read my book if it was taking place on a racetrack. Uh, if I'm writing a character from another culture, I want to make sure that I'm not making really dumb factual errors. And so a yeah, lot but of that's the different, Kate. If you're talking about factual as opposed it, to it offensive, it really isn't that different in terms of my experience of what sensitivity readers have been working with them through my publisher, though. Okay. Yeah, well, it's mostly like this wouldn't happen in this culture, that's not what that, uh, that holiday is about, that's not the kind of 
dialects that would happen. So it's been very, uh, very useful. And then there are always going to be things where uh, someone finds something to be uh, offensive or outside their experience and someone else from the same group might disagree. And at that point you have to just make your, your uh, best effort. But I don't think that uh, it's a bad thing on its face as long as you are approaching it in a spirit of um, trying to get things right and, okay. and uh, be generous and curious as a writer. But we're talking about you in the creative process today. I object to people going back and reworking yeah, I mean, those are two older books. They really are. Two different yeah. subjects. Right, and I, thanks for your insights because I see your point. I can see that it would be helpful. Right, so at this point, since we can't say much more about the book because we will ruin it, um, <laughs> from the very beginning, you can't actually trust anything that's going on in it. Um, any questions that you would like to ask Kate? Yes. Oh, a lot of different places. Um, I to think of it less as getting it and more as hunting it down and capturing it. Um, I try to read and um, uh, consume information and media very, very widely. And uh, when I'm in the space where I'm trying to think of a new idea, trying to choose a new project, uh, I just kind of cultivate a very receptive creative space and I pay attention to what things hit me and make me kind of spark and be curious and excited and so sometimes I'll just read through like the lists of new books coming out and read all of them and just pay attention to myself and see which of these made me go, oh, I really want to read that, or oh, I really wish I could write something like that. And I try to identify sort of the smallest piece of it. So like maybe uh, the only part of this book that made me light up like that was the idea of writing something set in a very isolated location. And so I sort of keep a catalog of those sort of things and uh, I let them stew and stir around and sometimes years later a few of those things will collide together and all of a sudden I have a concept. Do you do all this in your head or do you actually keep like a file or notes? I don't keep anything organized because uh, that's just I will never look at it again but I do fill many many notebooks with just like free writing about ideas and um, just like literally writing, I don't know what to write next, but I think it would be really cool if it was set in the deep winter and maybe it could be this and maybe it could be that. And that helps kind of organize my thinking and I tend to remember it better, but then I never look at those notebooks again. Yeah, but maybe the act of writing it down is really what the important part was. Yeah, I think that that's, that's the thing and it, uh, it keeps me chasing the thought and the idea more cohesively than just staring at the wall. So if that's the way you work, I have another question I just thought of. Um, would writing a series is a different thing than writing standalones. So but do you see yourself 
staying with several characters over over period of a number of books or do you like the idea that every book is a fresh beginning I do have a middle grade trilogy which was a lot of fun to write and uh, the also very challenging because it was my first series and I think that at my core I'm mostly a standalone writer there are uh, a very small number of sets of characters and ideas I think that I would want to uh, spend enough time with to get a series out of and that I would um, because I tend to like to take a character through a complete cycle and everything I wanted to do with them I want to do in the space of one book and a series character is a different thing you you want to keep hanging out with them from book to book and write their continuing adventures and the way that they change is different and the kinds of conflicts you present to them are different and I haven't trained myself in that way of thinking and so I don't feel like now uh, I would have a series in me anytime soon but uh, never say never <laughs> I mean I, 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 I think that it is a, a different mindset if you're going to Larry King once said to me that to write a series when she started her first one it's really like packing for a trip and you keep putting things in the trunk and because if you don't you can't ever take them out again but at the same time when you put them in the trunk then you're stuck with them um, so you know it's a it's a it's an interesting process in the sense that you can't go back and change an age or an eye color or you know if Michael Connolly had it to do over would he really make Harry Bosch age in real time, or would he still be, you know, like 47 and active on the <laughs> LAPD? Because that was the choice, mm -hmm. you know, to age him every year as opposed to, so Harry's now no longer a cop and, you know, whatever. Um, and that was a decision he made very early, but he didn't get to change it. Right. Yeah, you, you uh, really lock yourself in. There were a few things I discovered even in just a short trilogy yeah. where I was like, oh, I really wish I could go back and just change this little thing that I set up because it would work better. And so um, uh, it's definitely a, a whole different kind of challenge and I think requires a level of uh, organization and commitment to uh, tracking things from book to book that I, I'm not quite at yet. <laughs> the other thing I've noticed about people who write series is generally somewhere around book four or five, they decide to write a prequel because you start a series at a moment in time, you know, your character appears like, you know, Athena from the head of Zeus or something. But then if you've written about them for a while, you you wonder what they were like before you brought them to life, how they got there and what was going on. And so many long-running series actually have prequels. The most interesting one, I thought, was Charles Finch in his Victorian series. And he went back to write a prequel, and he got so interested in the prequel, he wrote a trilogy. So he wrote a sequel, a prequel trilogy, which I thought was really brilliant. <laughs> and it was particularly fun to read because you knew the characters, you know, later in their lives and decisions. But what he got to show you was in part how they got there. So that was fun. You know, maybe that sort of thing would someday appeal to you. Who knows? Anyway, another question? You're back. <laughs> I, I can ask this all night long. <laughs> what do you read right now? Um, I just started the book Whale Falls. Um, 
by Krauss is the last name. I think it's Daniel Krauss, um, which is about a young man who gets swallowed by a whale and has to get back out. And uh, I have not yet discovered if he does. Uh, that one, it's, it's starting out um, quite gripping. So uh, uh, other than that, I am ashamed to say I've been um, in a serious reading rut, just burned out lately. And so uh, right now I'm, I'm working through some um, big fat nonfiction. I'm reading the book Thinking Fast and Slow. Uh, and I am slowly sipping my way through one of Alice Munro's collections mm -hmm. uh, to try to rehabilitate my brain. <laughs> Um, from my end, it's a very lovely email, uh, and then doing a little dance. Uh, they have been really lovely to work with. Um, they released What Lies in the Woods as well, and uh, in both circumstances, um, it was a, a very smooth and largely hands-off process, and then just amazing to see just how many people got their hands on it. and. Um, they have a really impressive presence on Instagram and stuff. So it was uh, it was really wonderful to see the book just start popping up everywhere. So for those who don't know it, what book of the month is it? Or uh, book club, whichever. Book of the month. Okay. It's the book of the month club. Um, and oh, okay. I mean, there, uh, there are like 14 or 15 different books of the month, you know, like Reese's and Jenna and all the rest right, of it. No, so it I wasn't sure. It's called the Book of the Month. The month Club. That's where yeah. I was going. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it is the Book of the Month Club. Yes, my. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my grandmother subscribed to it for something like 30 years. So Wonderful. it was very cool. Yeah. <laughs> Right, but I mean now you know there's all these influencers and celebrities and other things who have book every every month. Publishers Weekly, which is a kind of an industry bible, will give you a whole list. You know, this is these are all the picks, and it can be as I said, Risa or Jenna or whatever. What what actually happens, which I find particularly annoying, publishers um, are trying to save money, and technology is improved, so they can print a small number of books and then they can go back and reprint fairly easily. But there's always a hiatus. And so if a book suddenly becomes like a Reese's, you know, pick for the month or something, the book just disappears. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's gone. Um, and sometimes it takes a long time for the publisher to bring it back. So everybody gets all excited about the book and rushes in to buy it. And I can't get it, you know, at all because, you know, it went off to the books of the month, or I mean, sorry, it went off to to the reason. Mm -hmm. So they have a they have an influence that is bigger than you might imagine, and some of it's on this just on the supply side, mm -hmm. um, which means that increasingly, I have to guess how many books to order well ahead of when it might publish, and you know, there's no way to predict. Although I did talk to Ariel Ahan about the Frozen River, which is a marvelous book, and it was a which book club is it? I can't remember. But anyway, it was a January book club pick, but they told her last June, or they picked it last June. And even then, the publisher 
didn't keep up with demand, and so it vanished away, you know, when the announcement came out. And I think I think that's sort of unfair to readers, you know, because people get all excited and they think, "Wow, it's a book club," you know, I'll rush out and buy it, and then and then they can't. Well, book of the month club prints their own books. Right. No, I so, know. I remember. Uh, that's a yeah, different they, thing. Yeah. Uh, they at least uh, <laughs> supply their own, so if they run out, that's their problem. <laughs> well, but they're obviously working ahead, and they know their membership, you know. So I doubt if this is, you know, s surprising. <laughs> As shocking, yeah. yeah, it wouldn't be. <laughs> Very awesome. And it's been, um, uh, it's been very good for the books. Yeah. Anybody else? A question that you'd like to ask? Uh, I am a full-time writer right now, so I write during business hours, Monday through Friday while the kids are in school. Um, and uh, I usually write in the morning uh, and when I'm drafting a book, doing the first draft, I usually write for three or four hours, um, not continuously. I set little timers and give myself breaks. Um, but I, I try to kind of reach my goal for the day and then I take the rest of the day off because uh, I learned very quickly when I suddenly had the whole day to write that uh, if I did that, then I would not be able to write the rest of the week because I would just be completely drained. Uh, so I, I limit it and there's always, there's always plenty more to do. Uh, with the non-writing tasks or I'll have edits running at the same time as I'm drafting or something like that so I can hop around between tasks. I think increasingly many writers, they do sort of time blocks and some of it's for the business of writing, which increasingly is falling to the writer. Yeah, there's uh, a lot to handle. Uh, there's all of the social media newsletter stuff and then just uh, a surprising number of emails that need to be answered and uh, little last minute questions and stuff like that, uh, especially the month or two before release. Andrew, do you have a question from the audience? Yeah, there, there are actually just some comments really, but um, kind of getting back to the subject of sensitivity readers and all that. Um, Robin says, thank you for discussing the pros and cons of sensitivity readers. Um, and someone else mentions that Lisa Jewell has updated her own debut novel, apparently. Um, yeah. Uh, so how do you feel about, uh, would you ever go back, you know, and look at one of your early books and make any tweaks, or do you believe? Uh, I think that there are a handful of things that I would do that for in the sort of category of like, I got something wrong. Yeah. Um, but oh, that's a dangerous can of worms to open. Yeah. Of course, I would go back and I would just rip it apart and rewrite it. But would it be better? I don't know. It would be the book that I would write now instead of the book I wrote then. But, uh, you know, that. Those are, I am a different person now than I was when I wrote any of my previous books, including this one. And so they each just have to stand as a snapshot of who I was and um, the thing that I created and, uh, you know, the imperfections of art and also just the way that we change and view things differently is just part of the process, you know. Shouldn't, shouldn't go back. Never go back. 
that's just about it here. Well, I mean, there's an analog question to that, which is, you know, do you read reviews of your books or, you know, comments from readers, and do they in any way affect you, influence you? Um, I mostly don't. Um, I mostly try to completely avoid reviews. Uh, I will occasionally ask a friend to cultivate some positive comments if I'm feeling wobbly. Uh, usually just like the early, early reviews before a book comes out when I'm really panicking about it. I'm like, please show me that someone said something <laughs> nice about my book. Uh, and then I do try to sort of, um, after there are enough reviews that there are uh, a, a sort of body of them, um, I try to do like a grit your teeth skim to see if there are really common threads and then sort of decide whether that's something that I want to tackle in my next book or something to keep an eye on or if it's just like, okay, I did something that this subset of readers isn't into, but it's a taste thing. And it's too late to go back and rewrite the book because yeah. it's already, you know, out there. Yeah, it's always about looking to the future. And uh, it helps me to have sort of a um, something that I am working on improving in my writing for my next one to, like, focus my energies and try to bring that piece of the craft up a level. And sometimes I've gotten that from reactions to books, and sometimes it's just about uh, my own knowledge of my work and what's hard for me. How about titles? Do you get to pick your own title? Is oh, that, God. Is that yours? Titles are a sore subject <laughs> right now. <laughs> yes, my next book is currently titled Murder Cabin. Um, because we do not have a title for it, and um, so uh, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit mad at titles in general as a concept. Uh, I usually either have a title right away, and it fits, and it sticks, um, or I can't come up with one for the life of me, and it ends up being a whole process. Um, what Lies in the Woods was not a title that I came up with um, because I had a series of truly terrible titles attached <laughs> to that project. But No One Can Know was what I turned it in with. So um, it's gone both ways. Was this new book your title? Yes. What role does your husband play in your life? Uh, a very supportive and offhand one. Uh, he... Uh, we were best friends in high school, and so he knew from the start that writing was part of the package deal with me, and that was what I, I wanted to do and pretty much uh, my, my only hobby. And so he has been um, completely supportive and at times financially supportive as I made the writing thing work. Uh, and he is uh, my biggest cheerleader, and uh, he has watched kids uh, during uh, unusual hours when I needed to get in an extra extra session of writing. Um, and he has let me uh, encouraged me to go on writing retreats, um, and he has always protected my writing time and my my ability to write and just never doubted me, and um, I really couldn't have done it without him, and uh, he's fabulous. 
if he's watching. Hi. <laughs> but probably not because he's being swarmed by small children and dogs. <laughs> so does he have any interest in writing himself or in fact has it turned him in an opposite way where he never wants to even think about it? Uh, I, I don't want to speak for him, but I will say that I recently bought him a special pen and a special notebook so that he could start taking notes on the project that I want him to write. So um, I'm, I'm trying to encourage his, <laughs> his interest. He has a very cool book that he's been talking to me about for quite a while, and I just need to push him in that direction. <laughs> we have a, for years, a wonderful reporter, Robert Anglin, from the Arizona Republic, has I think, thought about writing a book, right, Patrick? And we've talked about various projects. So do you have a if you've been reading his reporting on the Gilbert Goons, which is a truly horrendous thing going on here. So I wrote him, I sent him a link to a a submission thing. I think it's a Grey Wolf Press, actually, Patrick, where you could submit a nonfiction proposal. And I said, Robert, you finally found your book. Because I think that he could write a really amazing book. I don't know. Here's a question I don't know. Maybe if you thought about it, if in fact the journalism that he's written for the Republic has any sort of copyright or belongs to the Republic and therefore he can't use it verbatim, but he could certainly use the story in his own. It's an interesting question, you know, if you come to a project because you've been writing it for some other purpose. I don't know how that, that would work. But anyway, I did the same thing. <laughs> I said, wrote to Robert and said, here, you know, submit a proposal. I, I would love, I just think, imagine, I, it's a great title if nothing else. I think, yeah. I mean, there's so many things to explore in that whole thing. You know, where was where were all the responsible adults when this whole thing was going on? So anyway, you know, if you know somebody and, and you think that they could write a really wonderful book or they have a great book idea, I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing if you, you know, like gave them a shove. <laughs> a gentle, encouraging shove. Mm -hmm. Well, I was more direct. <laughs> I sent him a link. <laughs> you know, but um, actually, Grey Wolf is an extremely interesting press, and they, they do. They're an independent publisher. They do some really, it, it would be, I think, an interesting home for something like that. Anyway, you don't care about that, but it just occurred to me there was. Does anybody have a wrap-up question they would like to ask? No? Warn you all out? All right. Well, thank you very much for coming. Let's give Kate a round of applause and thank her. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.